Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin, uh, one of the elders, pastors here at Peninsula Grace. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. We're going to continue our series through uh, the book of Exodus. But I think this is a safe place to tell you something like this. Um, so if I wasn't a pastor, my dream job, I would move to Denali National Park, and I would be one of those bus drivers. You get the headset on, it's a bear, 11 o'clock, and you're driving. I mean, to be in the mountains with a microphone and a captive audience on a bus for 12 hours, like, that's, the park was established in 1970, ooh, look, elderberries, like, that just, to me, seems like a dream come true. Uh, I'm weird, but I remember the first time going into the park, and we were around the corners, we were heading toward Eielson Visitor Center, and I saw Denali out in all of its glory, and I just will never forget, like, my brain couldn't even drink in what it was that I was seeing, and it was beautiful, but there's also a fear there, right? As you look at the mountain, and I imagine descending that mountain, like, you don't just waltz up the great one, right? Uh, th- th- I would, this is not Russian River Falls, where you throw on the tank top, throw a Capri Sun in the fanny pack, that's how I hike, and, and then just go, right? Like, there are over 100 people who have died trying to ascend this mountain. And, and, and so we have to come up the mountain the right way, or we shouldn't come at all. And what we're going to see this morning is we rejoin the people of Israel. We find themselves at the, them at the foot of God's holy mountain, trembling in fear and in, in awe. And we want to learn this morning, what does it look like to approach the presence of a holy God? That's what we're daring to do this morning. This is not something, brothers and sisters, that we ought to take lightly. So uh, this week, I'm going to try something a little bit different. I, uh, I think it's important for us to learn how to dig into God's word uh, for ourselves. That's actually my job, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to know Jesus in your own relationship with him and do, do the work. And so uh, I'm, a little change of, of, of pace here. I'm not going to be putting the main text up on the screen today. Uh, and and, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to have a PowerPoint, right? Because I don't, I don't know if I'm physically capable of preaching without a PowerPoint. But uh, we're going to invite us to be, I want us to have our Bibles out in, in front of us. And so I, I'm finally going to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 19. We're going to be in Exodus 19 and 20 this morning. And my hope here is, and, and this is not, I, I think this helps us as we have our, and I, I'm going to especially make a, a plug for a, a print Bible, and it's okay this morning, I didn't give you a warning, you know, you, you can use your digital, that's cool, but it's cool having a print Bible, you get to see the context of the text that we're t- uh, reading, what's around it, uh, right in the immediate, and then where it falls in the, in the story of the Bible, and also a print version makes it a little less distracting when that text message or Facebook notification pops up, or you start wandering over to the NBA playoff scores, I'm curious too. Okay? But you don't see me looking at it, all right? So here, here's the deal. My, my hope and my heart in this, and we're going to try to start this as, as a new rhythm together, is just to keep our eyes on God's word. Because I am not the authoritative voice. God's word is. And, and so we want to seek the living God through the written uh, word of God. And so we want to do that together. So we'll be in Exodus 19 and 20, although the first point is going to lay down some groundwork first. So we're going to look at Adam, who I'm calling the OG Holy Kingdom Priest. The OG. Now, some people, even our front office lady had said, when she was looking, putting my notes together, she said, um, was that a typo? What is OG? I was like, she's just not as hood as I am. That's totally cool. 
So OG, if you're not, you know, hood is me. It's, it means original gangsta. So it's like the original. So like video games. I'm seeing kids play Fortnite today. And I go, oh, man, Atari, regular Nintendo. That's the OG of video games, right? You don't even know, you young bucks, right? I'm almost 40. Uh, so we, we, we look at the original, the original high uh, priest, the original kingdom priest here in the name of Adam. Um, and, and he starts on, on a mountain in the Garden of Eden. Now, we, we, ought, we know that the Eden is a garden, but it's also, the Bible talks about it as a garden, Look at, or excuse me, as a mountain. Look at Genesis 2. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. Now, I'm not a geologist, but if you have four rivers and they're all flowing away from this point, where are you? You're at a high point, right? And scholars would agree this was language to refer to a mountain. But we see it even more explicitly in Ezekiel. He's talking about the prophecy of, of Lucifer and, and one of the kings in the immediate prophecy. He said, you were in Eden, the garden of God. And then he says later, you were on the holy mountain of God, describing the same place. So we see this imagery in the Bible of Eden being a, a mountain garden. And on that mountain, there was a priest, E-I-E-I-O. God calls Adam and really all of humanity here on the mountain to a specific, a special task be a holy kingdom of, of priests. Now, what in the world does that mean? It's Bible language. We break that down. To be holy was to be set apart uniquely for God. That God created humans in, for a kind of relationship that he doesn't have with any of the animals, any of the other uh, parts of our creation. And that is to be uniquely in relationship with him and to be image bearers of him. That part of our job as humans is to represent God to the world. That image bearer, that word was icon in the Greek, were little representatives of God here on earth. We're called to send, we're sent out. Adam and Eve were taking care of the garden, to take care of it and keep it, is Genesis language. That's the same language as used in the tabernacle for the priests that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. So they were, the, they were the priests that were serving in the garden and were to go out into the rest of the world and make it Eden-like, to make it, to expand the kingdom of God. Now these people were to take care of the whole world, that our job as humans is, a kingdom is the space where God rules. So we're to go out into this world, and, and for it is the space where God rules, to rule under God, representing him before the world in relationship with him. But notice here, this is key, it says that we're ruling under God. See, it, God did not call Adam and Eve to do whatever they wanted to do, but to do his will, to do what he wanted, hence the rule in the garden. What did he tell Adam and Eve? He said, you, you can't eat, do not eat from this tree, and what tree was it? The knowledge of good and evil. What, he was, what is he telling them? I'm the one who says what is good and not good, what is right and what is wrong. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Right? Rule, serve under the all-wise God and listen to him. Now, why would God give them this, this rule? Why would he put restrictions on them in the first place? Like, isn't that oppressive? Why wouldn't God just create them and let them roam free, right? Footloose and fig leaf free, roam in the garden. Why did he have to be so restrictive as to put a rule on them? Well, I think we as a culture, we, we have a, a misunderstanding of what freedom really is. We maybe would define freedom as saying it's the ability to do whatever I want to do. This autonomy, a self-rule to govern myself. I, I define myself like I, I am my own. But that's not how the Bible defines freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. Freedom is actually the ability to be able to be who God created me to be. 
like a bird being able to fly as it was designed. I love what Tim Keller says, freedom is finding the right restrictions. And we find those from our designer, from our, our maker. There was a, a, an illustration that G.K. Chesterton um, gave that I thought was helpful for this. He said, we might fancy some children playing on the fat, uh, flat, grassy top of some tall island in the sea. There's a bunch of children playing on this island with this steep kind of precipice going into the waters. So long as there was a wall or a fence around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. We just don't write like this anymore. This is so good. They did not fall over, but when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror in the center of the island, and their song had ceased. So what happened to these kids when the fences were knocked down? They'd go, finally, we're free. We're not restricted to this land. We can go. No, it was, it was terror. Right? It was fear when their fences got knocked down. When I think about that with my, our little one-year-old Lucy, like she needs fences, right? If we don't set some parameters up in her life, she's going to be chugging bleach and juggling knives before you know it, right? We've got to put some baby locks on some stuff. And in the same way, man, we, God's saying, trust me. Like if you live however you want to live, like if you decide what's right or wrong, like it is not going to, it is going to lead you off a cliff toward death and destruction. And you read the newspaper. We've had a great case study ever since the Garden of Eden of what it looks like when humans live however they want to live. The fence, man, it's not, this is not God's parameters set up to be a killjoy. It's actually to give us the freedom to romp and play as he created us to do. And really, this is a, a moral fence. Obviously, it wasn't a literal fence. And the people were free. Adam and Eve were free to choose God's will or their own will. But we know the choice that they made. And it launched them and the rest of humanity off the edge of the cliff. But God, in that garden, he also graciously promised a rescuer who would come and help bring them back to the mountain of God's presence, into that life of freedom, a loving relationship with God as originally intended in creation. And so that that brings us back to our story here in Exodus, that this rescuer is going to come from God's newly formed people, the nation of Israel. Our second point is to look at Israel, this holy nation and kingdom of priests. Now, we come to the, to the foot of another mountain here, Mount Sinai. The people, as they've been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, they cross to the Red Sea, and, and then they've been in the wilderness learning what it is to trust and obey God. So here they are now at the foot of Sinai, which is the same place that God met with, uh, with Moses in the burning bush to begin with. Now he's back with the whole uh, newly created uh, people of God. And so Exodus 19, we're going to look at the, I'll have the CSB uh, version that I'm reading, but it's not on the screen, right? Because what did I say? In the words of Jeannie, made you look, right? You, you got to look in your Bible. So with Bibles open, uh, Exodus 19. It says, in the third day, verse 1, from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up to the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And this is the voice of God. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So here we see God speaking to the people of Israel, and he's setting up a covenant. A covenant involves binding promises in a relationship. Now, this is on the backbone of the promise that he's already made to Abraham. You remember back in Genesis 12, what did he promise to Abraham? He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and you're going to dwell in the land of Canaan, which is where the people of Israel are headed right now, and you, I will bless your nation, which is now formed as Israel, and through that nation, I'm going to bless all nations, which we see, of course, come to fruition in Jesus himself. But, but here he makes another covenant. We call this the Mosaic Covenant because it's through Moses that he gives it to the people of Israel. And in this covenant, here the, the, the covenant language that God establishes. Back to verse 5. Now, if, here's a covenant stipulation, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, and we're going to get more into that detail as, as they can go on their story, you will be my possession out of all the peoples. And, verse 6, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So it says, if, if, if you listen to me, if you hear my words and obey them, this is going to be the result. You will be my holy kingdom of priests. That's that language taking us right back to why God made Adam and put us in the garden in the first place. To be my holy nation. You will be set apart from all the other nations in a special covenant relationship with me. And you will be my priests, a kingdom of priests, he says, that are going to represent me to the watching world as you bear my image. And then you will be ruling under me. You're a kingdom of priests, but, but I am the king, right? I am going to tell you how to live. So God's purpose for Israel, as he, why did he rescue them out of Egypt from slavery? To form a new people that would rule under him in relationship with him, representing him to the rest of, of the world, to show the nations, to be a light to the nations. Here's what a loving, worshipful relationship with God looks like. Now, this is so important. We, we have to notice the order that God spoke these things. First, he says in verse 4, I delivered you. Look at verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And I haven't been able to get the song out of my head. Love lifts us up where we belong, on eagles, or where eagles fly. I don't know the song very well, which is probably for the best. But he says first, no, first what he did is he saved them. He delivered them. I carried you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. The first thing that happened was the rescue of the people. Then he gives them the stipulations for how to live. Salvation, rescue came first. Then the instructions on how his people would live. We can't underline this enough. That he redeemed them. He bought them back out of Egypt. How? Through the purchase of the innocent lamb's blood over the doorpost at the Passover. But here, now that they have been rescued, he tells them how to live. He, we don't reverse the order. He didn't say, in Egypt, I'm going to give you the commands, and once you start obeying me, then I'll rescue you. If that was the case, they would still be back in Egypt. And what we see here is, I think, a common misnomer. But oftentimes we think that the Old Testament shows people being saved by keeping the law, and that the New Testament people are saved by grace alone. 
In the Old Testament, God is this kind of grumpy, wrathful dude up in the sky. But the New Testament, he's love. And Jesus is flowy hair. And he's petting lambs and playing patty cake with children. It's kind of two different gods. And that's not, that is not, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And listen, nobody has ever been saved by works. Because that's impossible. No one can ascend the mountain on their own as sinners into the presence of a holy God. God knew, actually, that they wouldn't be able to keep the law. And one of the reasons he designed it was to show them their need for the rescuer that was coming to, to do the rescue work. Like with Adam, he, he lays down a fence of how to approach his holy presence. We, we see the presence of God. And we can get lost in this as, as we're just reading through it. But imagine being, like at Denali, imagine being at the foot of this mountain. Look at verse 9. It, it says, the Lord said, I am coming to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. So God descends onto Sinai in this dense cloud. And then if you jump down to verse 18... It says, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. This is not flannel graph Jesus. They're, they're at the foot of this mountain and there's this huge earthquake and there is cloud and fire and stuff. There's thunder on the mountain. This is the holy presence of God. And we always see this. God, many times in the Old Testament, his, his presence is symbolized through this smoke and fire. Remember when he met Moses at the burning bush, smoke and fire. How has he been leading the people through the wilderness? With a cloud, a pillar of fire and of a cloud, right? So once again, we see this holy God at the top of the mountain. And because God is holy, anyone that is not holy, if they would enter into his presence, they would die. And that's why God, back at the mountain garden, when he said, the day you eat of that fruit, the, the, the day you disobey me, the day you are not holy, you will be separated. That's actually, the word death means separation. You will be driven out of my presence. Now, that wasn't because God was like, ew, like I might get a sin stain on my shirt. This was actually for the sake of the people. It was out of love. To go, I'm going to separate you out of my presence or else you're going to fall down physically dead. God says, you can't just waltz up into my holy mountain. He continues that in verse 10. So, so how, what do we do? The Lord God told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. God's not playing games here. He says, man, if anybody is not clean and, and they don't go when I say and how I say, there will be death. God's underlining here what it looks like to approach a holy God. And this wasn't, this was, this was, there was a symbolism here, right? It wasn't like that their clothes were simple. It was, it was the heart of the people themselves, that you don't live rightly, and so you can't just walk into my presence. So how do they live rightly? How do they live as God's holy kingdom of priests? They've been living in Egypt for 400 years. They have no, they've just been slaves. They don't know how to live. They don't know what, what God's way is. And so 
God, like with Adam in the garden, gives them a fence, shows them, here's how you live like my people. And we would call this fence the, the Ten Commandments. And, and we want to look at verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, over, flip over to chapter 20. And, and, we, and again, I want us to look at the order here. So these, these are the t- we know these very well, right? But look at the, very, the way he starts the Ten Commandments. Verse 1, then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery. So the way he starts the Ten Commandments is not actually with a command, is it? How does he start it? Here's who I am. I am the Lord your God and with what he's done. I brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery. So once again, we see the starting point is who God is and what he has done. And from there, in light of my rescue, here's how you live. In light of what I've done for you, here's how you live as my image bears. And he gives them these ten words, the Hebrew says, or we say ten commands. And really, because you know there's hundreds of of rules and laws we see uh, in the law of Moses. But those are all echoes and kind of unpacking of these original ten commandments. So Jesus later is going to come onto the scene and he's going to summarize these words. And how does he summarize it? How does he summarize all of these commands? He summarizes it, he says... Love God and love others. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you have kept, you have fulfilled the law's demands. And that's really what we see here in, in the Ten Commandments. The first four deal with what it looks like to love God with all our heart. And the, second, the next six deal with what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself, to love other people. And so we look at these commandments, and, and we see it first with love God. What does it mean to love God? To love God, it means to be satisfied with with him, in him alone as God, that we value him supremely as God, we honor him supremely as God, we obey him as our Lord God. And and we see this in these first commands. So the the first one, look at verse three, it says, do not have other gods besides me. Do, Do not have gods beside me. So in other words, we would say God's first command is do not worship anything other, anyone other than me. That this is an exclusive worship uh, for God. Don't love anyone uh, more than me. I alone am your God. All your heart. Second command, he says in verse 4, don't make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. So he says, don't don't form an idol. So if the first one was do not worship anything other than me, the way I would sum up the second command is do not worship anything less than me. Do not reduce me to an image. Because really, if we design an image, who's become the God in that situation? I have. So he says, don't don't domesticate me. Don't reduce me to a created object. I am the creator. And and this third one's always, it kind of stumped me for a while. Uh, It says, verse 7, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. I always thought this was kind of a record scratch, or it was like, I get it, like, only worship God, don't worship anything other than God or less than God, but all of a sudden it was like, this sounds like, like maybe you've heard it, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So I was like, okay, I can't say OMG. Like, is that the rule? Like, it seems, or like, don't use God's name as a cuss word. I'm like, okay, like, I can do that. But what, I think there's actually something much deeper going on here. The word to take up or to, to bear, to misuse, that, that word is, is the, the Hebrew word for to lift up or to bear. And when we, it says the name of God, it's not just literally saying like the spoken name that represents God. The name was the essence of who that person was, their character. And why did God create Adam and Eve in the first place? He created them in his image 
to bear his image to the world. And so what he's saying here is do not bear my image wrongly. To truly bear my name. And this connects with the, the second command of don't make an idol, right? Don't, don't make that to be the image of God because we ourselves are to bear the image of God to the watching world. In the fourth command, he says, uh, basically, worship me with your time. We talked about this last week. In verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're to labor six days, do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. You must not work. This was setting aside one day each week exclusively for the worship of, of God. He says, rest in me and in me alone. Love God with all your heart. And the second we see loving others. And really, we would sum up these, these six commands. If, if we're saying that the worship of, of, of God is to bear his image rightly, then part of that is to value the other image bearers around us. That, that, that we would say rightly bearing God's image is honoring other image bearers. And, and you hear that echoed starting in verse 12. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony about your neighbor. Don't covet anything of your neighbors. This is horizontal relationship. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And why do we honor them and value them as image bearers? Why do we love them like that? Because our God honors and values and loves them like that. And so as we as Israel loved God and loved others, they would show the world the love of God, the name of Yahweh, the character of the gods whose name they bear to glorify him. Now we know, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they failed the test. What happens with Israel? We know the story. They miserably fail at keeping God's commands. Israel can't approach a holy God because they're sinners and they know that like look at verse 19 we, we see them it says there was thunder and lightning and the mountain surrounded by smoke and when the people saw it they trembled and stood at a distance verse 19 you speak to us and we'll listen they said to Moses but don't let God speak to us or we will die they see this 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 thunder and this lightning at the top of the mountain and say we're not going up there we're going to die if we see God if we hear from God Moses you go for us and so we see the people crying out for a mediator. And Moses acts on behalf of the people as their, the Bible language is a priest and a prophet. He's a priest that represents the people going up the mountain to God. And then he represents God coming down the mountain to the people as a prophet who speaks the word of God to the people. But man, we know even Moses is a sinner, right? Like, so this is just a symbol. This is a shadow pointing forward that they need someone a perfect mediator who can go between sinful Israel and a holy God. This is echoed in Psalm 24. It says, man, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the psalmist answers the question. Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship other idols, commands one and two, who never tell lies, command number eight, they will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. The only one who can ascend the holy mountain of God is the one who perfectly keeps his law. The, the one who is satisfied in God as their only and ultimate valued treasure. And we know in the story of the people of Israel, every single Israelite is going to fail at that, right? Every Israelite but one. There is one who's coming, 
a true and better Moses who will keep the law perfectly and ascend the mountain of God on behalf of the people, the holy priest. And this this points us to our, our third and final point as we look at today, us as the church, a holy kingdom of priests from among the nations. The question we want to we kind of wrestle with as we study this this passage is great. Well, how does this apply to us? Like, does God does God command us to obey His law today? What relevance? What we're reading these commandments? Do they have any relevance for us today? And and here's my concern. My concern for us in the church is that we often throw out the the baby of works and obedience with a legalism bathwater. That we say we are saved by grace, not works. Hallelujah. Amen. But then in the process, what that leaves us with often is just saying, well, then I can live however I want because I'm not saved by works. My only issue with that is the Bible, right? Otherwise, totally cool, totally cool. Romans 6 says, what should we then say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. This is a double negative in Paul's language that said, God forbid, no, no, not. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. So, illustration. My wife, Jill, her, her parents uh, adopted Steve at the age of five. Um, he is now, he's been adopted into the Whipperman family. How fun of a last name is that to say? Sorry, Jill, that you had to change it. Uh, now, why did Jill's parents adopt Steve? Well, first of all, it was to save him from a horrible subhuman situation that he was born into. But then secondly, it was to save him into a new family, like a safe home where he could be loved by new parents and new siblings and have toys to play with and have a pool, they live in California, to have all this this new life. As a family, they have a way that they live, right? A, a, A fence to live within safely. And Steve, as a member of this new family, is expected to abide by those things. So he's called to do chores like the other siblings. He's called to obey the rules and honoring his parents and all of those things. But, but Jill's parents don't say to Steve, Steve, we told you to take out the trash. You didn't take out the trash this morning. You are officially unadopted as our son. No, of course not. The adoption is permanent. But, but they do say to Steve, Steve, we love you. And we need you to trust us that when we, when we call you to live a certain way... That, that you listen to that and that you obey it. We want you to become a healthy adult. We want you to have loving relationship with us and one day a family of your own, perhaps. And so we're, we're calling you to, to, to listen and obey. You and I, we have been adopted by God our Father through the finished work of Jesus. Romans 8 says, You've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. In Jesus, we have access up that holy mountain. That we can, the holy presence of God, we can actually run up there and jump in his lap and call him the most intimate term available, Abba, Daddy. How is that possible? Because our big brother Jesus kept the law for us. He was the only one, Israelite, the only human. 30 years he lived and perfectly loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perfectly loved every single one of his neighbors as himself. And then he ascended the hill to suffer the penalty that we deserved as the lawbreakers and rose to rescue us from death. And in Jesus, if death is separation from God, Jesus won for us reunion to be brought back together to our God. And so now 
the reason we can ascend that holy mountain without falling down dead is only because Jesus made us pure through his blood and righteousness, full stop. Now as a part of his family, he says, here's the freedom fence. Here's how you live as a child of God. Listen to me. This is not, we're not operating out of a fear of getting kicked out of the family. Safely learning how to live and dance inside of the fence. We obey God not in order to earn our position as his children. We never could. Nor do we obey God to keep our position as his children. Because that wouldn't work either. But now, now, breed in Christ. We can finally live as he originally created us to live in the garden. In right relationship with him bearing his image truly, representing him accurately to a watching world. This is why, just like Israel's covenant, the order is super important. That we were first saved, and now we're instructed how to live rightly. We are rescued from Egypt to live as God's new people. So listen, our rescue as believers, our salvation, that's not the end. That's the means to the end. The end is God himself. The end is a right relationship with God. And and just like Steve and his new family, it's learning what it looks like to love our new daddy, to love our new siblings, and to love the world around us in right relationship, working rightly. I want to be crystal clear. We as a church are under the new covenant. We are not and have never been under the law of Moses, under the Mosaic covenant that was for a nation, the nation of Israel, at a particular time. But under the covenant, the new covenant, has God's character changed? It has not. And these ten commandments rightly reflect. Paul says the the law is good. They show us who our God is, about his character, about his name. Has our purpose changed? It is not. It's to glorify our God by bearing his image as his created ones. What's changed under the new covenant is actually us. We've changed. See, and this is where the analogies break down. Not only were you and I legally adopted into God's new family, we were also born again. As, as if Steve would have been born a whipperman, right? And now, born as God's new children, we have his nature in us. His spirit in us. Able to rightly reflect his image. And this is what the new covenant talks about in Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied about this new covenant coming for the, for the people of Israel, and it actually be given to the whole world. Listen to his language. I will also, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. So do you hear the language? This promise in this covenant is God says, I will clean you. Not that I'll clean myself. I didn't clean myself up. And then march up the mountain. God says, I will cleanse you from your idolatry, from your disobedience of loving me with all your heart, soul, and mind. He says, I will give you a new heart. That's our seat of our desires, our will. And I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone that did not obey me, that rebelled against me. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit in you. This is Christ in us, right? And I will, and here's the result of the new spirit, the new heart in us. I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. A new heart that obeys our God, lives within his freedom fence. You will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people. 
and I will be your God. This is the way, through the new covenant of Christ, and we'll, we'll go through this together in communion here at the end, what it looks like to walk into right relationship with God and to live the way God has called us to live. So how do we do this? How do we express the glory of God, the character of God? How do we live life in the freedom fence? We are not, this is not a reduction to just externally obey an outward set of commands. This is actually now, with this new heart, we're called to abide in Jesus. We put our eyes on, on, a, on a person, not tablets of stone. And so now, with his spirit abiding in us, that, that we can actually, we can, what, what does Paul say the fruit of the spirit is? It's love. As we walk in the power of the Spirit, we are going to love God and love other people. See, Jesus requires, yes, it's, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. But what did Jesus say? Go to the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He said, the way to abide in me, John 15, if you love me, if you abide in me, you will keep my commandments. We obey Jesus. And this is the freedom fence. Paul says in Galatians 5, it's for freedom that you have been set free. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity to go back to the slavery of sin and death. Live the new freedom life that you've been won. And, and here's the deal. If, if we do love God, if we do, we, look, at, look at these tablets again. If we love God, we're not going to worship another, right? We're going to bear his name rightly. And if we love others, Right? Well, I love what Romans 13 says. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the lo one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. The commandments don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. What's Paul saying? If I love my neighbor with that new heart in me, that new spirit in me, if I love somebody, I'm not going to murder them, right? It's a pretty safe rule. If I love somebody, I'm not going to steal from them. I'm not going to lie to them. I'm not going to covet their things. If I love somebody as myself, I'm going to be generous to them. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to delight in them. I'm going, to, I'm going to give preference to their needs even over my own. So what does this look like in our life? This is how we'll land the plane here. I would encourage you, a little, the homework assignment to take three gospel tracks, three gospel laps around uh, the commandment. So maybe just pick one. So let's just say we took do not murder. And here's what I, I would say. The first thing we look at is to see how we have, how I, I'll, I'll apply it to me, how I've sinned against God's command. Now, chill out, I didn't actually murder somebody this week, so that's cool. But, but did I? Because what does Jesus actually teach about murder? On the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you say, you've heard it said in the law of Moses, don't murder. But Jesus teaches what the heart of that was. And the heart of it, he said, that you don't even act out in anger against somebody, that you would not call them racha. And that word racha meant you good for nothing. You empty-headed one is the, trans, is the transliteration. That I am ripping the value out of that person. And I've done that 50 times this week. I've looked at other people we call it character assassination, right? The ways that I've talked about other people, the way I've looked at other people, the ways that I've played fa uh, favoritism with other people, the way that I've devalued them based on something other than their image bearing of God. But I'm guilty. And isn't that part of why God says he gave us the law, was to show us, to show Israel, show the world their guilt before him. 
So that's our first lap. And then we take another lap around and we see that Jesus actually kept the law for us. That Jesus came to this earth and for 30 years he saw every person that came into his sight as an image bearer of God. It's one of the cool things about watching The Chosen is just to imagine Jesus looking at other people and to see his compassion for him, the way he enjoys them, the way he just longs for them to be whole and to, to know him as their savior. That's the way Jesus sees every single person. Jesus kept the law in the way that I never could for me. And then Jesus was murdered. He was treated as valueless so that I today could stand on the sure ground of forgiveness, even though I still violate this command today. That's where my hope is, in Jesus' forgiveness, not in my ability to keep this command. Then the third lap we take around is how Jesus now enables us to walk inside of that freedom fence with a new heart in me, and this is a slow, messy process, but with the new, with spirit of God in me, I can learn how to value other image bearers the same way that God values them, to love them, to serve them the same way my God loves and serves me. And that's been my prayer, is Father, would this person feel the love of Jesus through me as I serve them, as I listen to them, as I see them the way you see them, Father? We're going to take the elements here in a couple minutes. And we're going to see, I mean, Jesus' blood spilled for us. He says, this is the new covenant. His body broken for us. Forgiving the law breaking of my life. And now, as we take those elements into us, it's a reminder that we now have Christ in us. And only with Christ in us are we acceptable before the Father. And can we live this new image-bearing life once again with our God forever and ever. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have it open before us today, that we can put our eyeballs on it, that we're not left to guess who you are. We're not left to guess the way that you called us to live life, but you've given it to us clearly. We thank you that in English, Lord, we have hundreds of copies of this translation available to us. May we not squander this gift of knowing you through your word, but God, we see in this word that you're holy and that we are anything but holy on our own born into this world as sinners, unable to access your mountain. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would do this work through the word. If anybody here this morning is being convicted of the fact that they've been trying to ascend the, the mountain in their own efforts, trying to clean themselves up first and then come into your presence, that they would cast their eyes fully upon Jesus. If anybody's been downcast today, thinking that they don't deserve to go into your presence, that, that it, because of their sin, we're right, but... We are accepted into your lap as Abba because of Christ's perfect work, keeping the law for us and dying for our law breaking to make us right with you today. So Father, would you utilize, would you utilize your word to convict, convict us and encourage us so that we can see the rescue we've been given and the new life available to us living with you, ruling under you, and going out on mission, representing you to the world. We do this in the name of the one who paid it all, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that all God's people said.